Radio. Hey, Brendan. So, normally, we have a guest all queued up, ready to go for the previous episode. It's not a train. No, it's not a train, I swear. Uh, but with this episode, I looked into it, and most of those people that were in performance are still alive. We don't like to have alive people because it's very difficult on them mentally in their real lives to come here. Um, well, we, we, we run a, a hard show. We do, we do. But I, I was at a loss, and so I sent up a telegram, and uh, they're sending someone down. So they should be here And you don't know who it's going to be? I don't know who it's going to be. I, I told them it was the movie performance from 1970. Okay. Um, and they just figured they'd, they'd uh, pull somebody down. So, uh, oh, I, I think I hear a jetpack. Uh, hello, sir. Welcome. Uh, welcome to the podcast. I'm Brennan. Uh, well, no, I'm not Brennan. Let me try that again. Hello, sir. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Jason. This is Brendan. Uh, uh, and you are? I call him a Dale Earnhardt, son. I'm the Intimidator. Wait, the stock car driver? That's right. Okay, I, I don't really know what you have to do with this movie. Well, you watched the movie called Performance, didn't you? Well, yeah. I mean, uh, that's a movie about stock cars, ain't it? Uh, no. Oh, no, sir. You want Ford v. Ferrari, maybe? Well, that ain't about stock cars, is it? That's about Ford and Ferrari. You ever seen a Ferrari stock car, son? I don't I don't know what's going on right now. You ever watch stock car racing? Uh, Jason has. He can tell you all about it. Actually, I, I have. I do know the Intimidator over <laughs> here. He's a, he's a legend. And I thank you for coming on, uh, uh, Mr. Earnhardt. But, uh, yeah, this no, I, I think there was a miscommunication. This is not a movie about stock car racing. This is a movie about a bunch of hippies. A bunch of hippies? A bunch of hippies. Well, bohemians, I suppose, and Mick Jagger's in it, and there's all these sorts of, um, there's a lot of sex. Do you like sex? Well, I ain't opposed to it. Of course you're not. You're the intimidator. <laughs> Why would you be opposed to sex? In fact, I, I would say I support it. Well, thank you, Dale. That's, that's, a, that's, a, that's a brave stance That's a strong take. thing. Uh, but I guess while we have you here, um, do you have any favorite British movies uh, that you like? Do you ever see a movie called Genevieve? Wow. <laughs> I mean, I sure. Mean, yeah, sure. We did actually watch it on this podcast. It's considered one of the greatest British films of all time. Yeah, that's what got me into stock car racing. What? Really? Genevieve got you into stock car racing? Well, well I like the idea of taking a regular car, and then you like tune it up a bit, and you drive it real fast. Dale, can you do the laugh? <laughs> Amazing. Yeah, thank you very much. Uh, it was actually the movie I, I watched the day before I died. 2001. Oh, wow. Yeah. Jeez. Well, you know, uh, it was it was sad, of course, but it was uh, as far as ways to go. I was glad I got to see Jonavi one more time. I call it Jonavi. Yeah, that's 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 no, it's not acceptable, oh, Brendan. Geez. That's not what the movie is. It's oh, Don't argue with him. Listen, son, I come from a place where oh, we know where people stand, and I think I know where you stand, and it ain't close to me. You understand? Well, no, I, I actually don't. But uh, anyways. Don't you anyways, me? Look, anyways, we. Th this is stupid, Dale. I don't understand why you're here. You don't know this movie. You don't know anything about Mick Jagger. Well, I do like his music. Well, of course you like his music. We all like his music, Dale. Just get the fuck back to heaven. Dale, Frau Earnhardt, come on. We have to play checkers. Uh, I, I gotta go. Uh, Heinrich Himmler wants to play checkers in Republican heaven, so mm -hmm. I gotta go join him. He's a weird man. I don't know how he got to heaven. Goodbye, jetpack. <laughs>
Welcome to the podcast. Mortal Kombat. How's everybody doing? Real good, real good, Brendan. How are how's you? It, how's everybody doing? How's the uh, people in the front? You guys a couple? Uh, <laughs> do you mind if I try this out for a bit, Jason? Yeah, no, just... you go ahead and work the crowd. Okay. You guys go to... You're a couple. You're married. <laughs> How long? <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> Her decision, right? <laughs> yeah. Okay. Okay. That's cool. I'm doing my Mike Buller. Just give me a minute. <laughs> um, this is going to be all, all the, the whole episode. <laughs> you guys over there. Yep. Well, this is fascinating. <laughs> Maybe we should start the show. Yeah, no, you you people shut up, okay? Just sit back, shut up, and and enjoy the fact that you're out for an evening in a location where we're not following any COVID regulations whatsoever. We have 115 people crammed into this apartment right now to see our very first live show and listen to the crowd. You can go ahead and insert Crown Town here, Brendan. No, I'll do it myself. <laughs> But enough jerking each other off, Brendan. What are we here to do today? Well, we can do it during the episode, but we're here to talk about... I'm Brendan. I'm Jason. We're here to talk about the uh, BFI Top 100. That Mm. is the Top 100 Greatest British Films of All British Time, as uh, conceived in the year of our Lord, 1999, because this podcast is called For Scream. And country. And that is what we do. We are... Ooh, Jason, we have watched 81 movies. It's a lot of movies. Off this list. Mm-hmm. Plus the other stuff. And that plus we've all done. the other movies we've watched. Yeah. And then all the other movies you've watched. And then all the other movies you've watched on your own time for your own benefit. Guys, I watched Supergirl for no podcast. Wow. <laughs> How was it? Just to watch Quick it. review right now here in the opening of the show. I'll review the first 35 minutes. It's pretty dumb. It's pretty funny. All right. that You heard that straight from Brendan. Print it on the box. It does have a connection to this podcast because Peter O'Toole is in it. What? For basically a cameo. How'd they get him? Uh, Money. Makes sense. <laughs> Man needs to eat. Oh, but we are talking about... A uh, a classic British comedy, a very uh, a black as night comedy. Um, but before we talk about that, we need to read some comments from last week's film performance. That's, so that's what we're here to do. We're comments, here to re- comments. We're gonna read them, guys. Can you hear how sexy we are right now? Because we've got a new setup again, and I think it's gonna be real sexy. Been a lot of experimentation, my friend, but I think we may have set upon it and it only took us 80 82 movies we'll see see. yeah but yeah we need to read some comments about the movie uh from our listeners about the movie performance jason what's our first comment brendan our first comment comes from listener dan gorman who writes i i assume he's a listener i don't know you pull these from facebook so maybe they don't maybe they don't listen i just i have i'm really good at searching algorithms well dan if you don't listen fucking do it because we're talking about you Dan Gorman, possible potential listener Dan Gorman says, I love that movie. Memo for Turner is one of my favorite Stone songs, even though I know it's not actually a Stone song. How does that work? Um, that's, like, that's like me saying, like, oh, yeah, Mr. Crowley is one of my favorite Black Sabbath songs, even though it's not a Black Sabbath song. It's an Ozzy Osbourne song. No, Friends. that's just, I guess that's just what he means. There. All right. Well, so, you know what? We all like what we like. Good luck, sir. <laughs> Moving on. God save the queen. <laughs> um, our next comment is from Steve Chafin. Uh, he says, I loved it. He also loved it. Uh, Jagger is actually great here, and there's a very swinging London in decline vibe. Everything is off kilter somehow, and nothing is as expected. And James Fox is terrific, too, and underrated somewhat. 
Uh, very long career. He's excellent in King Rat and the Remains of the Day, but he and Dirk Bogart and the Servant are off the charts. Yeah, buddy. We both agree 100% with that comment. Yeah, I don't know anything about King Rat, but he's no. great in Remains of the Day, and the Servant is amazing. Servant is one of the, the darkest horses that came into our uh, being so far, I would say. Yeah. A movie Who, we neither of us had any idea about. Which movie was probably the lightest horse? Uh, well... I mean, Lawrence of Arabia, I would say, because okay. we, we knew that was a It was a dark horse classic. for me. Well, yeah, you hadn't seen it. I but. expected it was going to be garbage, yeah. based on based on director alone. <laughs> I know you've long had a problem with David Lean. <laughs> and Peter O'Toole, that Razzie nominate, nominee. Our next comment, Brendan, comes from Julian Oldham. Julian writes, it's fun to picture the faces of the Warner execs when they realize that this is very much not, as they had been led to believe, a Rolling Stones version of A Hard Day's Night. I can never decide if I like the film as a whole, but definitely admire the experimental, fluid performance approach to identity. And that last guy, shot is inspired. Sorry, I turned it to Casey Case. I was like, what is going on? I, I couldn't help it. But yes, that last car shot is very inspired. And and Jason, that's why Daniel Day-Lewis is able to t- take over your body so often. It's because you just invite them in. I just, yeah. I Casey Kasem almost took over this podcast. <laughs> I want you to know that. Um, he is the premier DJ and we're probably in heaven. <laughs> uh, Janet Flemmer, or Flemer. I apologize, Janet. Uh, Flemmer? Uh, sure. There's Fle- no accent, but... Flemmer? It could be. Ooh, Flemmer. I hope it's Flemmer. Um, Janet says, maybe I need a rewatch. From what I recall decades ago, I was deeply disturbed by the violent first half and actually walked out. Fast forwarded on home video watch and I was fine with the second half. Have always loved Memo for Turner. I never would have thought of pairing it with only lovers which I adore. I love the implication of this, that she saw this in a theater. Yeah. That's awesome. And was like, and was like, no, thank you. <laughs> and I respect it. I don't know that I've ever actually walked out of a theater, a movie in a theater. You may have because you got, used to get them for free, so I'm sure that if you didn't like something, you could end it. But shockingly, I've only done it twice. What were the two? <laughs> Unaccompanied Minors. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Sounds like something is, that you... Is Robin Williams in that one? No, but no. doesn't it sound like something you couldn't legally watch? Yeah, it does. Um, <laughs> and then the other film is called uh, Johnson Family Vacation. Oh, okay, yeah. Okay. Cedric the Entertainer's uh, version so of Vacation. So a couple of like, like kind of family movies that you were just like, no, not doing it. I was like, I'm going to go sit upstairs and uh, stare at the wall. <laughs> Good call. Yeah. Um, I never walked out of a theater, Brendan, but the only movie I can... There's only two movies in my life I remember ever turning off in the middle out of disgust. One of them was Batman and Robin, although I'm going to have to go back to that. And the other one was uh, My Father the Hero, which I certainly have mentioned oh. before. Wow, you just... Did you just volunteer yourself for two <laughs> episodes of my other show? Well, I mean, yes, for sure. Absolutely. If I have to do that, I mean... I, I never did finish them, so I probably should. Son of a bitch. You're in. I'm in. Uh, our next comment comes from... I don't know, SC Williams-Holt, uh, which I feel like that's an F1 team, Williams-Holt. That sounds like an F1 team. Maybe that's a rank. Maybe he's like a, 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 I don't know, a sergeant charger. Is that a thing? SC, get at us. He's like he's like a sergeant charger in the in the Liberian army. Uh, anyways. Where does your, where does, where does your brain come from? I just, I, I read a lot. <laughs> okay. My, my, you know, when I was a kid, my, my main talent was that I was a human filing cabinet. Uh, but what do you in, mean when you were a kid? When I was a kid. But the, the pr- thing was, back in when I was a kid, that was a useful thing to be, was a human filing cabinet. But now with the internet, um, it's, it's way less useful because if you need to know something, you just look it up. Now it's about as useful as that virtual reality filing cabinet from uh, Disclosure. Absolutely. Wow. Wow. <laughs> I, don't even, I didn't even see that movie. But you know. You but know. I know. 
I know. It sounds about right. <laughs> so S.C. Williams Holt, what's he saying? S.C. Williams Holt writes, it's, I'd place it ahead of bad timing. Not familiar. But behind the likes of Don't Look Now in Rogue Cannon, definitely deserves its cult status. Jagger and Fox are good, and the lessons on identity resonate as clearly in 2021 as they did in 1970. Mm-hmm. I would also, uh, I think Don't Look Now, I think I preferred of the two, but I also did really like performance. Yeah, no, I would say Don't Look Now is probably a better film overall, like a more focused film, but this this has its, I mean, this is so influential just based on our watching of it. It's clear mm. lots of people watched this movie and liked what they saw. Oh, I thought it was great, um, just if I have to pick, you know, between the two. Yeah, no, absolutely. Next comment, Brendan, this one goes to you. Holden Martinson, this bud's for me? Yeah. Uh, this Hol- bud, this bud, in that Holden is our bud. This, this bud's for you. Holden, you're my bud. Holden Martinson says, good movie, really solid deconstruction of masculinity and conservatism through counterculture. Not my favorite rogue, but worth seeing. Yeah, it's, it's pretty much across the board. I don't think I, I really got anyone here who didn't like it, aside from you know um, someone earlier saying she had to leave and then go back to it later. Our final comment, Brendan, today is from one Adam Hures. Mm-hmm. And Adam writes, this movie is pretty good. Entertaining story in quite the trip on the senses with all the colors and music. Probably my favorite James Fox performance in Jagger is pretty great too. A great blend of the psychedelic and noir. Much more coherent than expected when I first heard of it. And a better and more enjoyable watch too than expected. I agree with that completely. Yeah, yeah. I, I, again, I, I suppose I had no idea going in, but had I had even the vaguest notion, I wouldn't have expected what I got. Mm. Well, I know um, watching this, after I watched it, it took me a while to even form my opinion. Yeah. Because no, I was like, it's, it's a weird fucking movie. Do man. I like it? Yeah. No, I do. <laughs> and then I was like, no, I really like it. So a lot of emotions. It's a challenging film, but it, it is fascinating. Oh, yeah. It's, yeah, I wouldn't say it's a pure popcorn film. No. <laughs> Except no. for maybe the first like 30 minutes, 30, 45 minutes are pretty much like a standard gangster movie. Yeah, well, standard in like today's standard gangster movie. It's still pretty true. Super ahead of its time yeah. in, in that time. But Jason, now comes our favorite part where we get to find out what American film Jason hasn't seen. Um, so this movie, this movie performance was number 48 on the BFI Top 100. And now we are going to compare it with the film that rests at the number 48 spot on the American Film Institute Top 100 list into made in 2007. So Jason, what movie is it? Number 48, Rear Window. Oh, okay. You have seen that, right? I have seen Rear Window, yes. In fact, I watched it probably within the last year or two. I mean... I like I gotta, performance a lot. I got to go with Rear Window. But yes, I have to go with Rear Window as yeah, I mean, well. It's, it it's, was so good. It's a classic. So fucking good. It's just such a goddamn perfect movie. And I've only seen it once, but it was so fucking good. See, to me, it's like performance is like a really good like four-star movie, yeah. whereas I think like Rear Window is like a five. Like, like It's like a perfect film. But performance is a movie I'm glad I watched. Perf- uh, Rear Window is a movie I would watch again. Yeah. yeah. I like, would maybe watch performance again, honestly. Like, maybe one more time. Let's see it on the big screen. Maybe over at the university. On my portable DVD player? Yeah. Fuck yeah, let's light that sucker up. Man, if Justin Cylinder's projector from 15 years ago, <laughs> we can watch it in all 480i glory on the side of a building. You guys all know Justin, right? Yeah, you guys know Justin. He's cool. <laughs> all right, perfect. So let's move on. We need to move on. We need to talk about this week's movie. We need to talk about... <gasps> Ooh, with Nail and I...
And while you'd be forgiven, ladies and gentlemen, for thinking that we watched an early 80s pornography film, no, we watched 1987? Six. 1986's classic British film, With Nolan and I. Which I always pronounced as With Nail and I until I started until watching we this movie. Until we watched it, yeah, yeah. yeah. I had never heard it pronounced, and so now it's With Nol. With Nol. Um, Jason, I have a question for you right off the bat. Sure. Before we even you know, start to pull this thing open. All right, let's lay some pipe, Brendan. I, I, all night long. Um, we, ta- we talked a lot about a lot about some British movies where I remember you mentioned this that certain movies made you want to smoke really bad mm. because of just the way they would smoke and like yeah. the, the smoke would fill the room and they would look so cool. Mm. This movie, I feel like, would make someone not want to smoke. Yeah, there's it's the opposite because the smoking in this movie is not very cool. They're often smoking cigarettes that are wet and and dirty and fucked up and a and, lot of wet cigarettes, a lot of tiny cigarette butts. Uh, actually, and, and speaking of smoking, it's it's interesting that we're getting to this so quick. But I noticed that uh, the second time that they they see Danny when they come back to their apartment and Danny has kind of squatted there, he's smoking butts out of the ashtray. He's just pulling the butts out and lighting them. And I, I as a as a dirty smoker, I have done that in the past when I was hard up, so I related to him. <laughs> yeah, well, that's what I mean. Like the smoking in this movie is gross. Yeah, all of it's gross. Well, it's because the characters are kind of gross. Yeah. So, what is this movie? Well, this movie with Noel and I is about two unemployed actors. Um, with Noel, of course, played by Richard E. Grant, and I. And I know I'm not. That's nope. not a mistake. That's in the credits. He is credited as and I, played by Paul McGann. Um. He, he now his character's name is Marwood in the script. Yeah, but they never actually say his name in the movie, so I think they just thought it'd be funny to credit him as and I. Apparently, there's a scene where uh, when he gets a telegram later in the movie, where if you pause and zoom in close, you can kind of see Marwood written on the telegram. But that's that's the only reference in the movie to his name being Marwood. But we're gonna call him Marwood because we gotta call him something. Yeah, I'm not gonna call him and I for <laughs> uh, the next hour. But also. We should note, too, that there are dialogue exchanges that were misinterpreted, mm. uh, that, they, that they said his name at some point, uh, uh, some other point in the movie, but it's they don't. They don't. They don't say that We'll just all. lay that out right at the beginning here. Don't you come at us. Don't you give us any bullshit. <laughs> That's how it is. I've only really got four main actors that I want to nail down here. So we've yes. got uh, Richard E. Grant, of course, and Paul McGann, both played Doctor Who. Uh, I don't know if Richard E. Grant did, but Paul McGann was Doctor Who in, the, I believe, the 1996 Fox attempt at making an, a, a Doctor Who series that never went anywhere. I think Grant did, too. I'm pretty sure. Uh, I don't know. Let's look that up. Well, and the other two actors, of course, are Richard Griffiths, who... Uh, He's you, not you... Doctor Who, but... What? Oh. <laughs> He's not Doctor Who. Not Doctor Who, but you young ones may know him because he played uh, Mr. Dursley, right? Yes, absolutely. Yes, from the Harry Potter movies. Vernon Dursley. In this movie, he plays Monty. Um, and then the other, other person I want to note is Ralph Brown, uh, who plays Danny, who you kind of mentioned earlier, the skeezy uh, drug dealer. I see no evidence that Richard E. Grant played Doctor Who. All right, Jason, we'll just drop it. Maybe he didn't play Doctor Who. If he did play Doctor Who, please let me know uh, if I missed it. But Only Jason. Sure. Don't let me know. I don't but care. But yes, Paul McGann, briefly Doctor Who in 1996, did not refire the franchise, and it would lay dormant yet again until 2005 when Christopher Eccleston brought it back with his great line reading of, Fantastic! And then he de- delighted and charmed audiences with his performance in G.I. Joe, Rise of Cobra. That's what he left Doctor Who to do. <laughs> 
<laughs> of course. <laughs> and he knew it was a... Uh, it was a I'm sure there was a few years hanger. in between, but know that that's what he ultimately was planning. He's like, this is it. This is my entry into everyone's hearts. But anyway, yeah, those are the four main actors. Because this movie, again, is about two unemployed actors, Withnell and Marwood, mm. Who, um, this isn't, there's not really a plot to speak of. I mean, they are, they are, they are living in squalor. Yes. And they end up, and you know, Marwood is like, you know, don't you have an uncle that has this nice, like, cottage home out in the country? Why don't we go out there and we'll see if we can go out there and borrow his house, borrow his cottage, which they think will be just lovely, right? Yes. Um, we'll live out there, we'll take a break, and then we'll come back. So they kind of do that, and we'll get into it, obviously, but they do that, they go out there, they end up coming back later. Um and there's and again there's no plot there no. it's it's very much a character driven yeah uh, this movie. Th- this is kind of these characters living through this period of their lives and I believe oh know, and it takes place in 1969 yes we should that's Which very I, important yeah that was something I didn't really figure out until after the fact because and it was noticed because what what's his face Danny there at one point says well no one dies from the end of the decade and and they're already selling hippy wigs at Woolworths yeah yeah um. So that's a time period, and actually a couple times, I knew going in, by the way, I read that it was like 1969, so a few times during the movie I was like, man, how old is Richard E. Grant? Oh, right. Yeah, <laughs> yeah so this movie is is sort of based on Bruce Robinson's own experience. Yes, and, dire- and writer-director Bruce Robinson. Yeah, and he said he compressed about, I think, to like two or three years of his life down into this kind of two or three week period, just to, to get some highlights, I suppose. Yeah, well, yeah, because Bruce Robinson was a struggling actor, of course, as many people were and are, still are, have been, will always be. Absolutely. Um, and he got his big break in uh, Romeo and Juliet in 1968, directed by Franco Zeffirelli. Franco Zeffirelli is actually the inspiration for another character in this movie, that of Monty, played yes. by Richard Griffiths. Now, going into the... Now, as I was watching this movie, because we need to talk about all these characters, but Monty yeah. in particular... Yeah. Is a, a, a well as he's described in the movie a raving homosexual. Well, he's not so much described as a raving homosexual as he's accused of being a raving homosexual. Well, he is a homosexual. He is. But, uh, he is. Uh, Marwood calls him a raving he homosexual. He says, and yeah, he assumes that he's a homosexual, and he's like, he's a raving homosexual. Well, and of and, and and out of no evidence to the contrary, other than just he's kind of a fet. He he's a bit of an, uh, an aesthete. Uh, with his approach to art and everything, and he owns a little dog that he yells at. Well, I mean, or cat. Can I just play some of his dialogue? Because yeah. I think there's some. There's yeah, some, there's there's some things he said. Yeah, for sure. Do you like vegetables? I've always been fond of root crops, but I only started to grow last summer. I happen to think the cauliflower more beautiful than the rose. Chin chin. Do you grow geraniums? Oh, you little traitors. I think the carrot infinitely more fascinating than the geranium. Mm. The carrot has mystery. Flowers are essentially tarts, prostitutes for the bees. Mm. There is, you will agree, certain je ne sais quoi, un very special about a firm young carrot. Mm. Excuse me. Do help yourselves another drink. Okay, come it's, on. It's okay. All Firm right. I'll give you that. Carrot. I'll give you that. For whatever reason, it didn't occur to me okay. while I was watching yeah. this scene. I just thought, oh, this guy really likes root vegetables. He also says that uh, he's a no one's uh, flowers. Come on. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Now, this, now that I, I listened to this, and there was a part later in the movie that made me think of, uh, do you remember in Spartacus 
when he's like, you, some men like oysters and other men like whatever. And, and, and it's all clearly like a very like mm-hmm. metaphor for being gay. That's what that is. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's, it's asking if he likes oysters. <laughs> Although the carrot thing sort of comes back later on because um, uh, the Danny rolls a joint he calls a, a, a Canberra carrot or something. It's, it uses at least 12 pipers and it kind of looks like a carrot. By the or, way, or I was in Canberra and <laughs> it looked on it looks like a carrot. By the way, you know that whole thing with them smoking that giant joint later? It reminded yeah. me of Pineapple Express. Yeah, yeah. Well, where it was a ridiculous sized joint and they all yeah. got very high off it. Um, and I, I, I myself have smoked a joint that was even bigger than that once. That's crazy. Yeah, I'm, I'm very proud. <laughs> what I wanted to say though about Monty is like the whole movie I'm watching this and, and before I knew that it was based on a real guy. Yeah, I'm like. This is an iffy portrayal yeah. of, a, of an aggressive homosexual. Absolutely, because up front, we already have him just straight up being like, well, he's a raving homosexual in a way that is not like, oh, he happens to be gay. Yeah. <laughs> it's very accusatory. Right. And he's like, and we get the sense that he's somewhat homophobic off the bat. Uh, and then, of course, his worst fears come true over the course of the movie. So, yeah, you're watching this going like, oh, my, is this just a really out-of-date movie using this old, like, gay fear trope? Which... I think they give Monty enough dimension mm. to not be that. And also, when you when you read into this a little bit, like I said, uh, Bruce Robinson, the director, when he got this job uh, for Franco Zeffirelli to do Romeo and Juliet, this is who, kind of who Franco Zeffirelli was. Yeah. He, you know, and he's not the only one that's accused this man no. of assault in the past. So this is this is not like a. You know, oh, he 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 flirted with me. No, no, this guy was not good. This subject will come up again once we uh, should we get to Canadian films because Claude Jutra uh, has had revelations in recent years about his activities during his filmmaking years. Oh, yes, it's uh, they, they used to say there are some streets, my friend, that have been renamed. Okay, wow. Well, there you go. I just wanted to get that out of the way. Is just say that the yeah, I spent a lot of this movie thinking oof, and then kind of when I read into the background, I was like, okay, yeah, I kind of get why he went this way. It's coming from a real place. It is, although I don't think everybody watching this knows that no. it's coming from this, so it still seems a little dodgy. But that's also the thing too, is that when we when we think of how powerful men act, yeah. In positions where they think they're untouchable. I mean, that that goes across the sexual spectrum, obviously. But like, is he powerful? I mean, he's kind of he's well off, I think. Well, he's the power in this situation because it's his fucking house. Number right, one, right, 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 right. Uh, he also, when he comes up to visit, so they they basically steal the key from him. No, I mean they. they I, I think he must know because well, he does we, come up to see them. Well, we find out later yeah. how they actually got the key from. Yeah, right. He, what Richard E. Grant right. was doing behind the scenes what with the, Noel. Yeah, what Withnell was was doing, but, uh, but the, yeah, so they do get the key, and then he comes up to visit them and brings a bunch of food and uh, firewood and drink. all the things that drink, lots of fucking liquor, lots of wine. There's a lot of liquor in this movie. Yeah. Actually, interestingly, I read, uh, I, when I was just reading on Wikipedia about this, they said there's a drinking game that you can play with this movie, Brendan, where you try to drink the same amount of liquor that uh, Withnell drinks throughout the course of I, the movie. I think you mean a death wish. Yeah, well, he drinks a lot of like whiskey and beer. He even drinks that lighter fluid, although I think people usually replace that with something else. <laughs> well, the thing with that lighter fluid is apparently it was water in the first take. Uh, Richard E. Grant walked away to, you know, catch himself a, bre- a quick break or whatever. The director didn't tell him. Bruce Robinson didn't tell him. He replaced it with like vinegar. Yeah. And like this really gross like whatever it was and he mixed it together and put it back in so when you see Richard E. Grant drink that and he has that reaction to yeah. it that's a real it's reaction a legit. <laughs> that's great which ew. but if you read into some of the stuff the director was up to it's 
it's questionable ethics on this set, especially towards Richard E. Grant. We'll mm. get into that a little later. But oh, sure. I don't know anything about that, so I want to hear. Um, but yeah, so Monty. Monty. Um, it's an interesting character. He is an interesting character, yeah. He's he's very erudite. He's very charismatic, clearly. He's... Um, he's so... He's upper class. He is upper class. And I think we should note, too, um, with Noel Marwood and uh, Monty are all actors. Yes. Or Mon- Monty says, you know, oh, to call myself an actor would just be, a, oh, I never had my heart in it or whatever. He's a, there are three very different yes. types of actors. Oh, absolutely. Because you have Monty, who's like the blustery, like over the top, like effect. You know, putting on air, he has this whole like kind of outward personality that he's developed that is, you know, very yeah. actory. You have Marwood, who is like the definite like, um, I would say like insecure, uh, very like neurotic kind of actor. He's like most actors. Yeah, and then you have Withnell, who yeah. just hates the fucking world. Yeah, he's he's Withnell is clearly one of these guys that kind of blames I think other people in the world for his problems and doesn't really seem to have any interest in remedying his situation. Like he he. Like first, is he he gets the offer of a job at one point, and he won't take it because it's an understudy role, and he doesn't want to understudy. He wants to act, and it's like, okay, you're not actually turning down the job. You just don't want to do this, and you're coming up with some fancy way of telling yourself that you don't have to do it. You know who he kind of reminds me of? Who's that? Um, this is a weird comparison, but he kind of reminds me of Johnny Drama from Entourage. Yeah, where yeah. he's like, where he's like. Oh, I can't get any roles, man. Mm. But he doesn't want to put the work in. He doesn't want to put the work in, and and if something doesn't feel like it, it feels like it's beneath him. He's not going to do it. What I'm saying is, make the movie happen. Adrian Grenier and Kevin Dillon with Nolan I remake. Let's do it. P- uh, Paul F. Tompkins, of course, starring as uh, Uncle Monty. Yeah, let's do this. Let's get this on the go. And the drug dealer that can be, I don't know, Seth Rogen. <laughs> I was going to say James Franco, but yeah, no, either one works. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, so and with Nolan's based on someone too. He's yes. based on an actor uh, named Vivian Mackerel. Mm. And this is a person that did not do a lot. He ended up, I think, doing like five five things on film and TV in total. And nothing was like a lead. Like it was all like yeah. small, very small. And he parts. did a lot of like stage and stuff in those days. Some. Yeah. He really did drink lighter fluid one day, yeah. apparently, and went blind for three days. Oh. So, <laughs> um, Bruce Robinson, though, he even he took Vivian to go see the movie. Yeah. Because he said he knew it was based on him. He's like, look, I'm, I'm, come see the movie if you want to. And yeah. he said, yeah, I'll take you up on the offer. He went to see it, and he said he, he said Vivian told him that he liked it, but he just looked very sad. Mm. Like, he looked like it was like looking in a mirror. Yeah, probably, yeah. It can't feel good to see yourself project it when you're living that kind of life up on the screen. Yeah, exactly. Um, but what this movie really is is a tale of... What two is ultimately a, yeah, it's a tale of two kitties. Yeah, Garfield uh, shows up. There's a lot of monologues. Well, aren't aren't uh, Withnell and Marwood sort of the Garfield and Odie of uh, this era of Britain? See, I would say that Withnell is Garfield, but he's also aesthetically more Odie. That's, that is very true. He's kind of got that tall, thin look to him, but he loves uh, lasagna. I don't know if you knew this, Brendan. Garfield, terrible alcoholic. Yes, I did know that, actually. But yeah. it's understandable given John is such a bore. <laughs> I... I I gotta say too, a movie like this is so difficult to yeah. nail because you have to be with these characters yes. from the, from the moment go. Which is interesting because it's a really it's a toxic friendship ultimately. Yeah, that, that kind of unravels by the end of the movie in the sense that that Marwood is ready to move on from this period in his life. 
I do want to play one of the first scenes, one of the first scenes of them kind of working together hmm. because it doesn't happen very often in this movie. But they're in their apartment, which again is a fucking dis- just disaster. Brendan, are you familiar with the uh, old British television show, The Young Ones? No. So The Young Ones was this comedy with about four guys that lived in a shitty apartment and it was very absurdist and weird and it's very funny. But like, this gives me that kind of vibe, if not the extreme like insanity of like the violence and over the top stuff they do on that show, just the vibe of this scumbag apartment. Actually, it kind of calls even back to, to train spotting of you have these guys who are clearly drug addicts to some extent i mean they're both alcoholics and there's drugs in the movie and yeah there's drugs in the movie and and shit actually fucking uh they do speed it was well, gonna say I, I don't know about marwood but withnell is clearly because he said he's been up for 60 hours and hasn't eaten anything because he's been on speed the whole time well doesn't he spit and he says that's the first solid thing that's passed my lips since that raw potato yeah since that raw potato 60 hours ago or something and then of course near the end of the movie when we see him driving the car he's clearly jacked up on something because at various times you look at this man's eyes and they are almost like pinholes. Like he is clearly yeah. on an upper of some sort. So yeah. So I want to play the first. I want to play one of the first scenes of them working together. Um, this is when they are. We see their kitchen and their sink, and yeah. Let's just play this scene. I'm gonna do the washing up. No, you can't. It's impossible. I swear. I've looked into it. Listen to me. Listen. There are things in there. There's a tea bag growing. You haven't slept in 60 hours. You're in no state to tackle it. Wait till the morning. We'll go in together. This is the morning. Stand aside. You don't understand. I think there may be something living in there. I think there may be something alive. What do you mean? A rat? It's possible. It's possible. Then the fucker will rule the day. Oh, Christ almighty. Sinew and nicotine base. Keep back, keep back. The entire sink's gone rotten. I don't know what's in here. Ah! Ah! I told you, you've been bitten! Burn! Burn the fucking kettle's on fire! There's something floating up. Fuck it! I don't want to touch it. You must! You must! The poop will ball through the glaze. We'll never be able to use the dinner service again. Here. Get it with the pliers. No, 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 no. Gloves, give me the gloves. That's right. Put on the gloves. Don't attempt anything without the gloves. Uh, what is it? What have you found? Matter. Matter? Where's it coming from? Um, don't look. I'm dealing with it. I think we've been in here too long. I feel unusual. I think we should go outside. Uh, yeah, I love. So what I wrote down, I literally wrote down my notes. This is like an action movie with like a bunch of FBI people trying to like defuse a bomb, hmm. right? Because they're like, "Oh, careful! Don't move that too far. <laughs> yeah. That is dangerous. Put the gloves on. Always put the gloves on. That must be the speed. They're all fucking paranoid and jacked up because of that. And, but it's and, nasty. Yeah, and it is nasty for sure. Yeah. Uh, I understand their their reticence to deal with it, but speedheads, man, speed freaks. <laughs> yeah. Lemmy should have been in this movie. Who? Lemmy. Oh. From Motorhead. Yeah. Man, he, that guy loves speed. He did drugs? <laughs> Brendan, I have some bad news. <laughs> oh, no. It just reminds me of that story that Triple H told where he said, uh, Lemmy was a gentleman. I went in there with my wife one time, and there was cocaine, and there was naked like strippers everywhere, and Lemmy saw Stephanie walk in. He said, all right, guys, clean it up. <laughs> <laughs> but he probably still had a slot machine with him. Lemmy used to bring a slot machine with him places. It was that's, weird. That's odd. He liked to play it. That's very odd. Yeah, I'm sure he was paying into it, so it was his own money. 
But yeah, that's, I just wanted to play a, an example of like them, yeah, them them working together because if they okay, this could easily be a really depressing drama because oh, yeah. it's it's kind of depressing. Oh, it's very depressing, <laughs> but it's also very funny. Yeah, it's it's the blackest of comedies, mm. like I said. Um, and and again, you have to be on board. You have to be on board. Withnil is a terrible human being. Yes, he. But but you get the, you also get the sense that like I I mean I did anyway. I thought he's more of like a tragic figure than anything mm. else. At least initially, yes, you get that, and and you get the sense too that Marwood is kind of a fuck up as well, and that they're kind of thrust together in their not ignominy. As, not as much. Not as much, but like that they're clearly made for each other, and that they're living yeah. in this situation because they've both kind of gone down similar paths and ended up in this spot. Right, because Withnil makes it uh, very clear multiple times that he's in a much worse position than Marwood. <laughs> yeah. The only thing we shared is this fucking bathtub. Yeah. By the way, in that scene that we just listened to where he says, fuck it, like really quick like that, mm. that was the line delivery that got him the part. Wow. That <laughs> The director has said that he just wanted to, when Richard E. Grant did the, he said, I would watch auditions, and if they didn't nail that line, mm. I said, hmm, probably not going to get this. And Richard E. Grant did it first time, no direction, just his first cold read. Yeah. Just like, you know, fuck it. And the director was like, that's perfect. He must understand what he's doing. I think he's got this acting thing uh, all wrapped up. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I would argue, by the way, he's also never had a role this good. Yeah. Richard E. Grant has done a lot of shitty movies. Mm. I mean, you got to act. Man's got to pay the bills. You got to work. I get it. But like, this is like probably the best, most full character he's mm. ever played. And he's and fantastic. And I know he's been in Hudson Hawk, folks. <laughs> I'm including that. But he was in that Star Wars movie, too. How many lines did he have in Rise uh, of Skywalker? I would say he had at least five. <laughs> Minimum. Although, I will say, actually, if you guys want to see a great Richard E. Grant performance, another one, uh, the movie is called Can You Ever Forgive Me with him and Melissa McCarthy. And he's fantastic in that hmm. movie. I've never heard of that one. Kind of similar to this, actually. Yeah. His role is kind of a Another little bit fuck similar. Up? <laughs> a little bit of a fuck up. Very like uh, a, a more a fet though. More in the realm of Monty than than uh, oh. Withnell. Yeah. So what we learn really over the course of this movie is that this friendship is based on. Um well, not really based on it, but it, this friendship is a lopsided friendship because we learn over the course of the film that that uh, that Withnell is really a shitty person, <laughs> a liar. Uh, uh, he's only out for himself. He tries to to sell out uh, Marwood a couple of times throughout the course of the movie. Yes, hilariously, this scene where, <laughs> well, we mentioned he drank the lighter fluid. Yes, he pukes on Marwood's shoes. They go into like this little like bar or whatever hmm. and and marwood has had to spray his shoes with perfume so this guy of course calls him a ponce which is a slur for someone you know gay person see that's weird because i always just assume ponce just meant like an idiot like a dummy well i think it's like a slur, not not necessarily gay but like a fat yeah. like uh flamboyant yeah, in, kind of thing. In, in the way that somebody might have uh, used the f word back in the 80s maybe right and i apologize if that's actually a super offensive <laughs> word but that's what he says and then you know, and then he, the guy comes over to to Withnil and Marwood, and Withnil like, you know, it's funny because we kind of see him acting in this scene where he's like, you know, I have a, I have a, a baby, yeah, I have a baby, a <laughs> wife and a baby at home. But then as soon as that's not working, he goes, listen, this is not my fault. Yeah, <laughs> you talk to him, you I'm sure you guys can settle it outside, and he takes off, and they both take off, and then later he almost has a, he almost uh, sacrifices him to a bull. Yeah, that's escaped from a farm. Yeah. Like, Withnell is, is 100% in it to win it. <laughs> well, and to the point where, so, we we see uh, Marwood's homophobia, 
uh, in his his uh, uh, scariness. But then it turns out, as we learn while they're at the cottage, that Withnil at some point told um, Monty that 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 Martwood was in fact gay and closeted. And uh, what's the word? What's the term he called him? Do you remember? Uh, a toilet trader. A toilet trader, which I had to look up. To I did find, too. Yeah, and that's a person who has sex in bathrooms for money. So that's, sort of a male process. As a Mark Foley type. Is yeah. That who that was? Yeah. <laughs> wow, there's some deep news uh, reference right there. <laughs> there you go. Uh, was that the guy with the wide stance? I think it was Mark no, Foley. No, wait, that was a different guy. The, I think Mark Foley was the guy that uh, uh, had relations with a page. Oh, uh, well, then I don't know. Yeah, because Mark Foley was the guy that Fox News showed him and, and changed his party uh, letter from an R to a, or from a D to an R. Mark or no, the other way, from an R to a D. Mark <laughs> Foley uh, dated Paige, is what you said? Yes, that's exactly what happened. Oh, okay. They were a great couple. Uh, it's weird. I saw him on Raw a lot of times. What was the controversy about that? <laughs> He's much older, I guess? Well, they, they did a lot of stuff in bathrooms. I don't know how it works. But yeah, so anyways, fucking Withnell told him that, that he was gay. He was a toilet trader. And then, of course, that gave... Um, uh, uh, Monty, the the impetus to go and try to make something out of this because he found him quite adorable. Well, that's another. I guess that's another reason why you can say that Monty is more of a full character because yeah. he's not doing this thinking that Marwood is not gay. Yeah, he, th- this isn't just an out of nowhere uh, assault on like a random an RKO. person. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> this is not. This is not a sexual RKO. This is uh, him acting on bad faith information. <laughs> sexual RKO sounds yeah. like a good name for a band. But like about 10 years after Randy Orton retires. Yeah. Yeah. And we kind of forget about it. And then him. he can make like a cameo in the music video. It'll be the people who remember the meme of the RKO and not <laughs> Randy Orton. Sexual RKO. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. So again, he's, I don't think Monty is that the movie makes sure you know that Monty is not just an aggressive guy going after someone he thinks is not gay. Mm. Yes. Uh, for the most now, part. He still goes after someone who's. Probably not interested. And and continually resists, and he just assumes that he's, like, nervous about it. <laughs> yeah. It's like, oh, no, you're clearly gay. I mean, obviously, I mean, I'm just trying to get you to open your mind here. Right. But it, but it's the line. The, 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 the darkness comes in, in a particular line, Brennan, which uh, he says something to the effect of, uh, I mean, to have you even if I burgle it. Oh, yeah, that's, that's yeah. like, yeah, that's, yeah, that's the where it goes into, yeah. Yeah. And I could see why at that point uh, Marwood's quite freaked out. <laughs> <laughs> He's a big guy. Yeah. Um, let's talk about Withnell. Mm. Richard E. Grant. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah, fantastic. Amazing performance. Uh, Richard E. Grant, teetotaler. Yes. Does not drink. Does mm. not drink. Does not. I don't even think he did drugs. Like well, I think. I think it was that he's actually allergic to alcohol. He was allergic to alcohol, but I mean that's a good reason not to drink. Right? Yeah. Um, however, on this movie again, we go back to the Bruce Robinson maybe not being a great guy to to you know Richard E. Grant told him that you know you can't do this movie without being drunk, without knowing what it's like to be drunk, because you know you can't just let actors act. Yeah. Exactly. Why would they? <laughs> but, but I mean, I see his point, but it also seems like a cruel thing to do to a guy who has an alcohol allergy. And it's also like, you know, method acting is such an overrated thing. It's such hmm. an antiquated idea. Like, just let the fucking actors act. Yeah, I'm, well, I'm thinking of more... If somebody's in... method, that's fine. If they want to be method, whatever. Well, but, but method, wouldn't method be actually being drunk during the scene? Kind of, but it's also like, 
I don't know. I feel I feel like it's like uh well in order to know in order to be scared, I'm gonna scare you for real. It's like that whole thing. It's like just let them act scared. True. I mean, but there is an argument to be made, like if, again, if, if if maybe Richard E. Grant wasn't allergic to alcohol, he just wasn't a drinker. Sure. I could see the argument being made that hey, you're an actor, you need to draw from experience, you need to do this so that you understand where you're coming from in the scene. But like I say, it seems pretty cruel to do it to somebody who physically can't handle it. Like I definitely think it was not a situation where he said, Hey, I need you to drink alcohol so you can experience it. And Richard E. Grant was immediately like, cool. Yeah. There was probably a lot of pushback. <laughs> Had to have been a little bit of pushback. Yeah. Um, and, and and apparently he got very, very sick and, and like was drunk the next day. Like and it took him a long time to drink like a, a small amount because he just it wasn't a drinker. Yeah. And that just doesn't that make the performance, though, like not the fact that he had to like drink to prepare, but doesn't that make the performance kind of even more astounding? It is. Yeah, because he does feel realistic. Like he doesn't he's not doing like a W.C. Fields character or anything like he's doing. He's doing a a very grounded take on being quite drunk in the middle of the day. It's 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 not it's not this is not even the um, and it's not even the kind of realistic performance of a drunk as like Peter Mullen and My Name mm. Is Joe. It's just, but it's a very like this guy feels like a like an anarchist. Yeah, but he's also he's also mostly functional while drunk too. Like yeah, he's not he's not completely sloppy, stumbling all over the place. Although we get close to that a couple times. Yeah, <laughs> and I would argue too. This is like one of the most dangerous performances of all time. And what I mean when I say that is like he is given it. Yeah, and in the hands of someone less talented. It could have ended up real bad. Like it could, it could have. It could have ended up like a shit, a real shit, like a really shitty performance. Yeah. I'm glad that he was allergic to alcohol because that prevented him from going down the Robert Downey Jr. Uh, route of preparing for less than zero and then becoming a drug addict. Well, that oh god. Well, <laughs> that that I mean that yes, but I also just mean like it's a dangerous performance in terms of like as an actor mm. because he's he's almost at the brink of being over the top. Yeah, but. It still works. He rides that line and it works for the movie. Like maybe this performance would be slightly less believable in a drama, but for this type of black comedy, it works very well. He also, did you notice he's, he's uh, subtly doing a little bit of like an alcoholic shake? Like he has a little bit of a shake to him, a little, no, little, little tremors. Hmm. Um, what, the, the, the scene where they're, he's rubbing all the like, the, what, yeah, what that? Like it was the, like icy, it was like hot? icy hot, basically. I think all is what over, the idea was because they were over cold. His body, yeah. And I feel like speed is one of those drugs that probably makes you cold. I think that's what the issue was. And then they went, they went out to, to sit on the bench and they had to wait four hours for the pub to open <laughs> so they could get a drink. Yeah. well, they That's ru- when they come back and drink lighter fluid. Or, well, when... Uh, uh, Withnal does. Withnal drinks lighter fluid. He also picks a fight with Danny, who we haven't really talked about a whole lot, but Danny is the drug dealer. Danny might be my favorite character in the movie. That actor's performance is so good. The, the character's voice, by the way, is based on someone Bruce Robinson knew. It was like a... Like a makeup design, a makeup person or something, and Bruce Robinson was basically like, "This was the, this was the dumbest, most inept person I have ever met in my life." And they had this like, "Well, why don't you do that?" Like it was like that, and Bruce Robinson was like, "I couldn't stand this person," and I was like, "That's the voice." And yet, it, it for me, it comes across as so wonderful and interesting voice for this character that he, it's almost he's almost a little bit childlike in how he sounds, but he's clearly not an idiot. Like he, uh, uh, I mean, he has some dumb ideas, but like he clearly pays attention to stuff. He talks about reading politics at one point. <laughs> well, let's let, let's listen to Danny for a second because this is a scene where, and he kind of confronts with, uh, he kind of goes goes tete a tete with, uh, with with Withnell a little bit when it comes to drugs. Yes. Why is he behaving so tightly? Because a gang of cheroot vendors considered a haircut beyond the limit of my abilities. I don't advise a haircut, man. 
All hairdressers are in the employment of the government. Hair oil aerials. They pick up signals from the cosmos and transmit them directly into the brain. This is the reason bald-headed men are uptight. What absolute twaddle. Has he just been busted? No. Then why is he wearing that old suit? Old suit? This suit was cut by Hawks of Savile Row. Just because the best tailoring you've ever seen is above your fucking appendix doesn't mean anything. Don't get uptight with me, man. Because if you do, I'll have to give you a dose of medicine. And if I spike you, you'll know you've been spoken to. You wouldn't spike me. You're too mean. Besides, there's nothing invented I couldn't take. If I medicined you, you'd think a brain tumour was a birthday present. I could take double anything you could. Very, very foolish words, man. He's right, Griswold. Look at him. His mechanism's gone. He's had more drugs than you've had hot dinners. I'm not having this shag sack insulting me. Let him get his drugs out. Yeah, I, I really like Danny, too. I think the two performances, like, I think all four performances are great. But I think Richard E. Grant and Ralph Brown are, like, the two big highlights for me, for sure. I, I really like when he first shows up and it's like, how did Danny get in here? And he's like, oh, he's looking for his, cl his lost clog. Oh, and isn't that the gross scene where they're, like, in the bathroom and just, like, eating food? And, yeah. And, and Marwood is in the bath eating, like, fries out of like a disgusting oh no that's paper. that's later on no first the first time he's there he shows up and then when he leaves he goes oh by the way do any one of you have shoes because <laughs> he's barefoot <laughs> that's a running thing yeah. by the way people don't have shoes <laughs> uh there's another funny bit with that later is when uh uh when when uh with puts his shoes and his boots in the oven to heat up and mm. then you know he quickly sits down and he's like well i can't I, I don't have my boots i can't do those chores you wanted me to do and he's like so you're saying if you had boots you would and he makes them wear like plastic bags yeah uh, it takes me back to my boy scout days <laughs> <laughs> so yeah so that's danny we talk about money we talk about them all kind of i mean marwood is kind of our guy he's like a bruce robinson stand in yeah stand in but then when they get out into the country I don't know about you, but I got like, and I know this came out after this movie that I'm going to mention, but it yeah. kind of felt a little bit like local hero. Yeah, there's a little bit of that, of the city boys going to the country. Just the, in the, the personalities mm. of people, right? Yeah, we don't see too many uh, of the locals, but the ones that we do, We get yeah. the farmer. Get the farmer, get that, his wife that, or mother, I don't know. It's well, what, that, that woman who does not, who, I, I, I love how they immediately shut down the stereotype of country people being, uh, country folk being so like welcoming yeah. and everything. And she's just like, basically like, get the fuck out out of here yeah um we Although also have the, the farmer is quite nice because he does give them some wood and does send them up a live chicken to uh, uh eat oh, God, <laughs> <that chicken laughs> it still has its feathers on and they put it in a pot to cook oh it's so gross <laughs> no they don't they, they they sit him up on the block in the stove they, they leave the legs on and they still got some feathers on it and they set it up on the block that uh Whitnell had been using to dry his boots so it was just sitting in the oven cooking <laughs> with its legs yeah. with feathers still on yep. the bird <laughs> Um, cause Mar it's funny too. Cause like Marwood is supposed to be the cook between yeah. the two of them. And he's also a terrible cook mm -hmm. too. But yeah, so I was going to say, um, yeah. So the farmer, the, the lady, there's a bartender who yes. with no pretends that he was used to be in the service to yeah. get free drinks. Yeah. And well, he, he sort of reminds me of the old major from, uh, uh, faulty towers, except on the other side of the bar. Oh, the drunk bartender said he was already hammered before the the pub even opened. I like how he opens the cash at one point, and the the bartender he's like, "Oh, nearly took myself out." Yeah. <laughs> and then there's the poacher. Yes. Which I thought like, 
when the poacher shows up and he's got like eels in his pants and he's got like pheasants in his back. He looks like he has like a like a hunchback. He takes the pheasants out and everything. I thought he was actually going to end up being a psycho. I actually first for half a minute until I realized when this movie was made, thought he was the same guy that was in Oliver Twist. That was uh, the oh. the criminal guy that kind of looked like Walter Matthau because this dude looks like a fat Walter Matthau. If he aged that well, yeah. I mean, tell me your secret, buddy. <laughs> yeah, forty years on, he looks almost the same, but a little chubbier. Wow, <laughs> <laughs> hit me up. Hit us up on Twitter if you're still alive. At which BFI you're not. Underscore you're not. Pod. But we we will be happily take any tweets from dead people if they would like to. If people want to, if dead people want to tweet as well as open the show, that's, that's the cool. thing though. In, in Republican heaven, they just they they have an exclusive deal signed with Parler. <laughs> oh no! Yeah, I know. Well, at least they don't have Twitter. <laughs> oh yeah. Well, I, that's the thing. Things are much nicer up there, despite the lack of uh, uh well, not in spite of because of the lack of Twitter. Yeah. But their parlor is for uh, Irish Republican heaven. Yes. They don't have it for G- for GOP. No, for GOP heaven, they just have an old version of MySpace. <laughs> Donald Trump has a blog, people. <laughs> Dog with a blog. Yeah. Just the the look of this movie, too, right? We talk about the kitchen scene mm. with, the, with the sink, but, like, everything is just the details are so great. Like, um, there, there's a, even, like, early on when Marwood goes to the cafe to have, like, coffee and you see that someone making like an egg sandwich yes that i've noted that in my notes that that egg sandwich was the saddest looking fucking oh, egg sandwich that and, i ever and, saw and the person the person's hand there's like dirt under their fingernails mm. the person takes a bite of it and the yolk just squeezes at yeah. the other side it's just so nasty and i wonder if that's a specific comment on british food uh because the brits don't have a great reputation when it comes to cuisine now i, I believe if i ever go to britain i'm sure that i will have that remedied because i'm sure the british make many delicious things but that's been a trope for a long time even, you heard it here first, folks. Jason says all British food is garbage. Even going back to like what when I was a kid watching Are You Being Served and how the the quality of the food in the cafeteria at Grace Brothers was always a running joke. You know that the British just had this thing with food, mm-hmm. mm. where it was more they had to eat it rather than they wanted to. Um, yeah. So there's that. There's like just the just the the cottage itself, the design yeah. of the cottage, the bars, Very the old. mountainside. Um, Again, that that local hero vibe, almost somewhat, where everything's yeah. kind of very old and 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 uh, uh, worked in, you know, and used, used, yeah, just like you, used up and thrown away, wow, like, like a condom wrapper. Okay, I don't know why I was gonna say like a pair of old potatoes. <laughs> Well, you would eat the potatoes. You wouldn't just use them and throw them away. Throw what would you? I guess unless you were making like a potato battery, and then you, they got too rotted. Get rid of this pair of old potatoes. <laughs> throw them out. By the way, this movie. I know. Well, well, I'll talk a little bit later about like how it was received and everything. But this is a huge cult film in mm. in England. Like this movie is uh so quotable. Yeah. Like there's so many quotes. I, I watched. Like I also watched the documentary on the Criterion Channel. It's only about like twenty five. Oh, you watched long, that uh, with the, Mill and us. Yes. Yeah. And there was there's a lot of the, a big section of that documentary is just fans talking about how many times they've seen the movie. Mm. And one guy, Jason, looks in the camera, dead ass serious, and says, "I haven't seen it as much as some of the bigger fans. I probably only seen it about twenty times. Wow, only twenty times. I don't know what movies in my life I've watched twenty times. I don't think I've watched Fight Club twenty times. I have one for myself. Which one? Jaws. Not, not proud of it. No. Masters of the Universe. Wow." When wow. I was a child, I mm. rented that movie every like three days for a good solid two months. Wow. You could have just bought it and saved yourself so much money. Jason, it wasn't on sale. That's true. 
Yeah, I, I guess if if I had to get to get down to it, it probably would be something like Wayne's World or uh, Sister Act Two. Wayne's World, which I watched willingly, and Sister Act Two, which I did not. Or a Serbian film recently, right? Yeah. Oh yeah, I watched that at least once a week. Mm. Mm. That's on my that's on my spank day. And you rent it each time. Yeah. No. Obviously, I I and I have to go way out into the country to actually rent a physical DVD. It's overseas, even. Yeah, it's a long way. It's a long way to go, but it's worth it. <laughs> Um and, and, and like not okay so we talk about like uh the kind of look of the movie but even like the the just the dire situations of some of this movie we talk about the wet cigarettes and the mm. broken cigarettes but at one point they have to like break apart the furniture just to have firewood <laughs> yeah. um everything is like foggy and mm. dark and raining and yeah they go to this lovely cottage in the country and it's just windy and raining and just awful it's a gale they're having trouble getting up the road and of is- course they have a map because it's 1969 and there's no gps isn't that great though like that yeah. the because you know in it in almost any other movie they go to the country and it would be like such a you know splendid like beautiful lush scenery in this movie they go to the country and it's just as bad if not worse this is more like i know where i'm going where it's just it's a it's an endless storm yeah <laughs> with no friendly people along the way except for the farmer and no and and no rich uh, husband waiting for them outside the storm no neither of them is going to a rich husband no and, and that's their downfall i think ultimately you think if withnell could have found a rich husband he'd be doing much better <laughs> um you mentioned you also mentioned uh, with no being uh, not wanting to be like an understudy, for example. Mar- Marwood will do anything, hmm. and I think there actually is a, a a part where he says he did take an understudy role, and then like you know, spoiler alert: at the end of the movie, Marwood has a part. Yeah, and he well, had been going for what he thought was like a very smaller, like just a soldier part in a play. He didn't care; he was just happy to have the work, right? And then it turns out that we learned that no, they want him for the lead of this play in in Manchester. And there's and there's a there's an interesting there's a cool little uh, bit here because Withnell early on says something like when when he he cuts his hair mm. and he says like oh I'm not cutting my hair for a role are you kidding me mm. Marwood cuts his hair for the role that he gets at the end of the movie yeah Mar Marwood cleans up real nice because he yeah, yeah he, he shaves and he cuts his hair and he looks like a, a respectable person at the end of the film and it's the only time that he refuses alcohol yes that he turns it down. And that's kind of represent. I mean, that's that's so representative of where their friendship is. Like, he he is ready to move on. He's got this job. He's moving to Manchester. He's finally, you know, getting away from Withnell. Not saying that, that necessarily was his objective, but it's a bittersweet moment. And Withnell clearly doesn't want him to go. Won't say it, but like the fact that he's trying to get him to drink with him and kind of drag him back down into the gutter with him so that his misery can have that company it loves. And but, then, but, but, you know, he won't do it because yeah. he knows he's got to get on that train and go do that job. And then another kind of tie in what happens here. And I'm going to play this clip here in a second. But early on in the movie, Monty says a line, something along the lines of like, there's a moment of realization in an actor when they realize they'll, they're, they'll never get to play the Dane. Because hmm. these are stage actors, yeah. by the way. These are not like film actors. And, and when he says that, you know, they'll never, they realize when, when they realize they'll never get to play the Dane. And in the closing moments of the movie, um, Withnell is doing like a like a, a sonnet. Is that what it's called? Something from Hamlet. Yeah, sonnet the, from Hamlet. What, he, what piece of work is man or the, whatever? He's, he's doing you know the Dane and to no one, and yeah. it's like it's a very sad. Uh, just for the wolves. Just for the wolves, like a zoo, I guess. There. Yeah. Well, my my wife and I were having trouble figuring out exactly. Must be like just, a sanctuary or something. Yeah. If there's just a zoo, or if, yeah, if there just happened to be a pen of wolves in the middle of London or wherever yeah. they were, like. 
So I just I just want to play this because this is him literally doing a sonnet for Hamlet to no one. No one else is around. And I think this is like very few actors could pull this off and make it not sound just like super stagey. Yeah. I have of late, but wherefore I know not, lost all my mirth. And indeed, it goes so heavily with my disposition that this goodly frame the earth seems to me a sterile promontory. It's the most excellent canopy, the air. Look you, this brave or hanging firmament, this majestical roof fretted with golden fire. Why, it appeareth nothing to me but a foul and pestilent congregation of vapours. What a piece of work is a man. How noble in reason, how infinite in faculties, how like an angel in apprehension, how like a god! The beauty of the world, pagan of animals. Yet to me, what is this quintessence of dust? Man delights not me. No, no women neither. No women neither. Yeah, so that's, I mean, I think he's going to die. He's yeah. going to die without Marwood around. Yeah. And before that, he even, he does have kind of an emotional moment because he says, I will miss you. Yeah. Um, but it's I think... One of the rare, like, actual bits of, of genuine emotion out it, of him in the movie. It's almost too little too late. Yeah. Right? Because, no, absolutely. Because, like, you should have been doing this before. You should have yeah. realized what you had. Like, this friend, the only friend you'll ever have. Da- like, Danny's not your friend. No. Danny barely knows who he is. That's the thing. Your drug dealer is not necessarily your friend. They're there to sell you drugs. That's it. So I, I looked up the the sonnet itself just to get an idea of like the actual meaning, like what people what what is the generally accepted meaning of this sonnet. So and I assume you sat down and watched the entirety of the four hour Kenneth Branagh Hamlet. Sure, that's exactly what I did, <laughs> and I turned on the annotations. Yes, absolutely. Um, <laughs> I turned on the uh, the X ray on mm. on Amazon Prime. Um, but it basically it's, although man appears to be noble and admirable, he himself can find no joy in his life or in his interaction with humanity. As was once said so eloquently in, uh, the classic video game, Castlevania Symphony of the Night, what is a man? A miserable little pile of secrets. Is that on the BFI? It should be. Okay. It's a classic. Okay. <laughs> no, that's that's the that's the that's the um the final moments of the movie. Um I you mentioned it while we were listening to the clip though. There's another clip that we should listen to. Yeah. And that is a scene where the, again another scene where they're kind of working together. Mm. Uh, because Monty shows this is after Monty has shown up to the cottage. Yeah. Um unannounced. Oh, by the way, when Monty shows up, they think it's the poacher. Yeah. They think it's the poacher come to kill them and they're in bed together. Yeah. So Monty sees them in bed together, so that also adds to that whole thing, yes. right? Uh, and, and then that comes back around later when, to get out of being uh, assaulted by Monty, he tells him that, no, it's actually Withnall that's the closeted one, and they've been in a relationship for, like, a long time, and that this was the first time in six years that he hadn't slept with them. <laughs> and holy shit, I'm just realizing something now. Yeah. There, that earlier scene where Withnell tried to act his way out of the situation mm. with that dude who, like, called him a ponce or whatever, yeah. didn't work at all. No. But but 
Mar- Marwood nails this. Yeah. Because Monty believes in hook, line, and sinker. So yes. he definitely is the better actor. He's the better actor for sure. Yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> he has to apply it to real life. <laughs> well, he comes up with a logical uh, a sounding uh, solution to what's going on or a logical sounding explanation. Whereas, you know, with Nolan, that earlier scene is just pulling shit out. Like, oh, I have a child. Oh, I did this, that. Like, he's not... Shows the commitment. Yeah, although he does occasionally work because, of course, he gets those free drinks when he's. But, that's, uh, but I feel like that's an easy one, though. Well, because the guy's hammered drunk. So, yes, yeah, absolutely. Of he's going to convince him. <laughs> he's an old man and he almost took himself out with a cash register. But, yeah, but, but the scene we're going to talk about here, yeah. they, they go into a, a cafe. Is that the one we're talking about? Yes, because Monty, yeah, because Monty takes them into town to get shoes. Yeah. He said, like, go get yourself some Wellingtons. <laughs> yes. And they're like, yeah, thanks. Thanks for the money. Um, we're going to go get drunk now. Well, that was Whitnell's idea. And of Whitnell. course, and Marwood goes along with it. Yeah. So they go into this cafe and uh, and this is- Well, they, they go to a pub first and they do get drunk. Yes. And then they come out and they eventually go to this cafe because they want some cakes and wine. Um, but despite the fact the cafe is full, the owner clearly doesn't want them there and tells them that it's closed. All right, here. What do you want? Cake. All right, here. No, we're closing in a minute. We're leaving in a minute. One cake and tea. Didn't you hear? She said she'd closed. What do you want in here? Cake. What's it got to do with you? I happen to be the proprietor. Now, would you leave? Ah, I'm glad you're the proprietor. I was going to have to have a word with you anyway. We're working on a film up here. Location, see? We might want to do a film in here. You're drunk. Just bring out the tape. Cake and fine wine. If you don't leave, we'll call the police. Balls. We want the finest wines available to humanity. We want them here, and we want them now. Miss Blenner has it. Telephone the police. It's all right. Miss Blenner has it. I'm warning you, if you do, you're fired. We are multi-millionaires. We shall buy this place and fire you immediately. Yes, we'll buy this place. And we'll install a fucking jukebox in here. And I all you stiffs up a bit. The police, Miss Blenheim, has it. Just say there are a couple of drunks in the Penrith tea rooms and we want them removed. So that laughter at the end of that scene where Richard E. Grant is like seemingly drunk and laughing at the guy, it's real laughter. Mm. Um, because apparently, and Bruce Robinson was getting so frustrated because every take he was laughing. He was like, what the fuck is, why you keep laughing? Keep ruining the take. And he's like, listen, you have to do something about the, the dog behind me because the dog is like a, I think it's like a pug. Yeah. And you know, pugs have that breathing and they go like, <laughs> right? And he's like, every time that fucking dog breathes like that, I lose it. So in that scene, so Bruce Robinson's like, fuck it. Just, if you do it, just do it. And in that scene, that's why he's laughing because the dog behind him is just doing this, like, you know, his pug breathing. But it's great because he's drunk and he would laugh at yeah. random points like that, I'm sure. Like, well, that's he, why it still works. Yeah, right? exactly. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> no, that, and uh, as I understand, the, the, was it 2003, there was a poll of a thousand movie watchers and that, and that line, he says, uh, bring, bring us the, your finest wine, or we want your finest wines and we want them here and we want them now was voted as the third best one-liner in a movie. It's a good one. I don't know if I call it a one-liner, but it's a great line. I do also like earlier when he says, I demand some alcohol. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah. Yeah. I think uh I think maybe we'll time for a break. 
Let's take a break. Okay, let's take a break. Come back with some bits and bobs and some behind-the-scenes information. <gasps> oh, I can't wait. And uh, we will be right back. Age of Radio. I demand some bits and bobs. Well, you're going to get them. This is a handmade film. Where else have we seen handmade films, Brendan? Life of Brian was a handmade film. This uh, is George Harrison's production company, and we see his name in the credits as an executive producer. And that is significant because George Harrison put up a good chunk of the budget and also is the only reason why that song, While My Guitar Gently Weeps, plays in the movie, because otherwise that would not be in the movie. Yeah. Well, yeah, obviously. I mean, if anybody can get it for you, it better be George. And he probably had a good he probably had a good hand in getting them all along the watchtower, which well, I it, imagine it, was different Jimi Hendrix songs as well, which, which is rare. I was going to say which I imagine was not a cheap song no, to get. No. And and these days famously the um the Hendrix estate does not license its songs for movies that that have drugs in them. Okay. Now, you could argue that, you know, it wasn't really a focus of this movie. It's not like they were taking speed to All Along the Watchtower or Hey Joe or something, but it's it's kind of notable to me for that reason. I kind of love the estate for being like that, though, because they don't, they're like, we don't want him to just get pigeonholed as the drug guy. Yes. Yeah. And, of course, we also have an interesting cover of Whiter Shade of Pale up front. I heard a that live organ. version. Yeah. Isn't that interesting <laughs> that they did that? That's a weird choice, yeah. Yeah. Huh. Yeah. Maybe it, it, it kind of gives it that vibe, though. It kind of establishes right out of the gate that it just feels more raw, mm. right? If you yeah. had a nice studio cut of it, yeah. I don't think it works as well. I mean, it's a good song, but... It's a great song, but but I'm just saying in the context of the movie, I think yeah. this the, the raw, like, live feeling with the... You hear, like, they, they keep in, like, the audience applauding. Yeah. <laughs> like, we also, when we're in the restaurant where we talked about that sad sandwich that we saw... Ugh. Uh, we also, I think the whole point of that scene, Brendan, is just, is, is just showing how, I guess, how much disdain that Marwood has for society around him. Because seeing that, you know, these people, these dirty people making dirty food, eating dirty sandwiches. But then everybody sitting around him is reading the newspapers and they're reading like News of the World and Daily Express and the Mail. And they all have these salacious, salacious headlines about murder and about a, uh, a guy who had a sex change. And it's all very tabloid shit. I was a little put off by the, the fact that the sex change was thrown into like all the murder stuff. Yeah. Well, but but that's also reflective of Britain's tabloid culture. Like yeah. it's, it's funny because you're in, in our, on our side of the pond, we don't think we think of tabloids as a very specific thing. We think of like national Enquirer, the globe, uh, the, the, the late lamented weekly world news. Like we think of these like literally tabloid sized papers that you buy at the supermarket checkout. But in Britain, like that tabloid shit is in major newspapers or stuff that consider themselves major newspapers, like news of the world used to be. And like the daily express fancies itself, which is a right wing rag or the mail or whatever else. Like, yeah. So that's an interesting thing to me. Uh, so I just wanted to point that out. I like Danny describing himself as a purveyor of rare herbs and prescribed <laughs> chemicals. Yeah. It's a drug dealer. Yes, yes, that is that's that's the sort of flowery language that a, a self-introspective drug dealer would describe themselves as. And I love the whole bit because he goes off on a bit where he, uh, where he says somebody about like a, you know they got those dolls that piss themselves. He's like, I'm gonna make a doll that shits itself. And me, I'm like, that's a terrible idea. Me, me and my friend, presumptive Ed, <laughs> presuming Ed, presuming Ed, and that's he is right. credited 
as presuming Ed. Can we just take a sec to mention the brief amount of racism in this movie? Oh, where he calls him the... Well, he calls him a spade, number one. He said, who's the big spade downstairs? Which is like, wow, I haven't heard that word in a long time as a, as a slur. Casually, too. But also, when Monty refers to his former agent as a, as a like a... Oh, that annoying little Israelite. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. So there's a little bit of that, but that's, that's understandable in Britain. Very casual racism. Very casual racism, but but probably representative of these characters at this time in 1969, you know. Yeah. I would also argue uh, Monty is just as much of an alcoholic as Withnell and Marwood. Oh, yeah, he drinks a lot of wine with them and is happy to. They're just different kinds it's of It's just because he's more upper class, and he's got a house and nice clothes, so nobody says shit to him. But when it's a dirty guy drinking, oh, well, that's a problem. He's too busy figuring out the mystery of a young, firm carrot. Yeah, I, I enjoyed the line. I enjoyed the line where uh, Withnell says, that fucker will rue the day! Talking about the rat. Which, by the way, with Withnell's dialogue, this has to be close to in the running for the most uses of the word fuck. There's a lot of fucks in this, this movie. This is here. a lot. I also love his line where he says... I dislike relatives in general, my own in particular. Hmm. I dislike relatives in general. In general. <laughs> like any relative. <laughs> so everyone. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Uh, hair is your aerials, as we heard Danny say other, and so that's why bald men are uptight. Uh, and that's why I'm an uptight asshole, because I have no hair. Very uptight. Oh, man, I'm like Jerry Seinfeld over here. All right. Dating a bunch of 16-year-old women? Is that what you're saying? Look, let's not talk about my personal life. Okay. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> getting mad on Larry King? Uh, well, Larry! Yeah, oh, clearly. I had the number one show on television, Larry. Don't we can get canceled? <laughs> Larry. 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 What? I'm just asking a question. Weekapaw, go ahead. Um, Hold on, I'll ask my seventh wife. <laughs> uh, I was really hoping we'd get to see a drug contest because it seemed like they were brewing a drug contest because he's like, yeah, I can, I can do as much we, as you or twice as much as you. We kind of do. Yeah. Because later in the movie, they do smoke that huge joint they and Withnell is fucked yeah danny is barely affected <laughs> i've smoked a lot of weed in my life i don't know if i've ever smoked any weed that strong but i've definitely been close to that yeah well especially after the big joint i smoked that time i love that scene too though because they're freaking out because uh danny says like oh because he's been squatting in their apartment while they were in the country and he says like while you were gone there were rats and i had to give them poisoned onions or whatever yeah. and then <laughs> marwood is like you poison the onions oh my god oh my god i can't deal with this and it's like oh yeah that's that's i've had similar like freak outs like <laughs> yeah he clearly i don't know if he's coming down or if he's just an anxious guy but he has a couple moments like that in the movie where he's clearly freaking out and he just wants a downer or a drug or something to calm him down um these are all just like lines that i really like like monty says uh <laughs> he can't he can't cook the meat he says i used to weep in butcher shops <laughs> yeah <laughs> which is a fun image <laughs> this poor little fat kid just crying in a butcher shop <laughs> Uh, of course, flowers are prostitutes for the bees. Uh, yes. That's that. That's true. Was Monty wearing makeup at one point? Uh, yeah, I feel like at one point. Uh, yeah, I got the sense that uh, during that scene where he's like the the big confrontation. Yeah, yeah. He at least looked like he had a little bit of lipstick on, maybe lipstick and like eyeshadow. I thought. Yeah. Yeah. Which I was like, I was like, I don't know how I feel about that. I feel like they're pushing this like this trope, this stereotype a little bit too far. Or or that's how special night he thought it was that he had to sure. like uh, doll himself up a bit. And again, it it go. You mentioned that Marwood is, you know, has some like homosexual fear, I guess. Mm. But they don't. It doesn't. It, I mean, they don't use any slurs, which shocked me. Mm. Um, yeah, it just didn't get as homophobic as I thought it was going to get. I was yeah. sh I was shocked by that. Yeah, well, the more homophobia from it came the the fact that he was like 
uh, uh, wary off the bat, even though it turned out to be a legitimate fear in retrospect. You kind of feel for Monty a little bit, yeah. don't you? Yeah, like, no, he absolutely. Totally interpreted this. I mean, yes, Marwood clearly at some point doesn't isn't interested, mm. and he keeps pursuing it. But he also is getting fed this information from Withnil, yeah. right? About how, oh, no, no, he's just nervous. He's yeah. just shy. And so, you, he, kinda, so you, you, you think he's really trying to break through to this guy and, and kind of connect with him on a, on a different level. I totally thought the telegram that they get later, I thought it was going to be the Monty had killed himself. I had the exact same thought, Brendan. Thank yeah. you. I was <laughs> that like, he had like driven away, and then it was like minutes later that we get a telegram and be like, oh, no, he hanged himself out by the tree. 100%. Yeah. I was like, oh, here we go. <laughs> yeah. But thankfully, no, that's not where it went. And and again, I want to point out Richard Griffiths is great as uh, Uncle Monty, and his Uncle Monty feels to me like a mix between Paul F. Tompkins, the comedian, and the character played by Martin Short, Jiminy Glick. It's it, <laughs> I, 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 I understand now why he's not very nice to Harry. Um, yeah, oh, yeah, he's exactly. quite a past. That's right. I mean, maybe he made a pass at he's, Harry, and it didn't work. Oh, oh no! <laughs> I mean, when Harry when Harry was older, of course. Harry, Harry oh, Potter. Yeah. No, no. You know, Uncle Vernon was an asshole, but he was going to wait till eighteen. You know, he wasn't going to jail. Not again. I don't like this. Uh, the pee bottle. That was a fun idea. <laughs> oh yeah, we gotta talk about the pee bottle. He gets that from Danny. Yeah, Danny. Uh, apparently, Danny invented it, or or some friend of Danny's invented is, it. You know? All you gotta do is get a child's urine. Yeah, because that's easy, right? Yeah, exactly. You just get child urine. Just ask a kid to pee in a cup for you. That won't be a problem. What well, does he says with no when they're on the road? He even says like, "I have to find myself a child." And he says, <laughs> "And you know, uh, Marwood says, why do you need to find a child?'" He's like. Well, to 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 make him a better part of society or something, and then he's like, but also, him, yeah. but also because I need his piss, I need his clean urine. <laughs> and, and he says he basically says this bullshit thing where if he gets pulled over to the side of the road for you know drunk driving, all he has to, he can refuse every test and just pee in a bottle. And clearly, that which is wonderful pre-internet and even during the internet kind of like approach where it's like, no, 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 man, you just refuse everything and you take this one, you take this type of test. Which these days, yeah, they don't give you a urine test for. Uh, for drunk driving, they give you, if, if you won't take a breathalyzer, they'll give you a blood test. Touch, or they touch your nose before anything else, really. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, but then he could, totally gets busted doing it. Like, they actually yeah. do let him do it. And yeah. they're like, what's that bloke doing what's behind the curtain? <laughs> and he's clearly got the thing. They still let him go. Yeah, I know. That was, uh, I guess, you know, back in those days, drunk driving was, was more of just like a minor thing. Yeah. <laughs> as Slap far on as the wrist. Concerned. Also, by the way, note their car. They're driving in a rusted a rust bucket of a fucking Jaguar. Mm-hmm. It's like a really nice car. And and that to me is representative of, of Withnell where he's from a clearly wealthy family, but he's kind of absconded off to do his own. And, and this is mentioned a couple times because Marwood keeps telling him to call his father to ask for money because they need money. And he's like, I'm, I'm not going to do that. And I, I certainly understand that you don't want to ask your parents for money if you don't have to. And I think that's where the <laughs> relatives line happens. Where yeah. He dislikes yes. all relatives. All relatives in, in general and his in particular. <laughs> Did you catch the... Re- so there's an accidental wrestling reference. Oh. Because, I mean, it wouldn't have been. But th- but at the same time, also a reference to an actor who we kind of talked about in a, in a, a BFI movie a while back. Soupy Sales. No, not, not <laughs> the BFI Top 100 Superstar Soupy Sales. Um, but... <laughs> what is it? Um, Withnell says, I'm going to change my name to Desmond Wolf, which is what Nigel McGuinness's name was in uh, TNA. Wow. Was he maybe a fan of this movie, perhaps? You know what? Yeah. It, that you could be. That would seem to me to be like, he heard it in this movie once and thought, oh, that's a good name. I could see him being a fan <laughs> of the movie. But also he says, but then Marwood says, that's too close to Donald Wolfett. Donald Wolfett was the father 
of the girl that uh, Joe ends up marrying in uh, a Room at the Top. Oh. Yeah. Like the actor or the character? The actor. Oh, okay. Yeah. I just <laughs> thought that was cool. Yeah, interesting. He's also in Life at the Top, but yeah, yeah. he's the he's like the big the big rich Yeah, uh, the, r- the rich old man father that runs everything, yeah. of course. Yes. Wow. Who knew? Me. So... <laughs> As we mentioned earlier, they we, we get the impression they steal Monty's key. That's what it seems like. But of course, we know later on that he had that, that Withnell had told uh, uh, Monty that Martwood was gay to get the key. He's a toilet trader. Toilet trader. He's a Mark Foley. <laughs> I love that they burn uh, Monty's furniture, and he doesn't say anything about it. Like he doesn't even mention it. No, I think he just uh, I think he just wants to be with Marwood. Yeah, I think I think he's running on dick power at that point. He doesn't care. <laughs> Big dick power. Big dick power, baby. Uh, some beautiful countryside in this movie again calling back to movies like um, a lot of British movies we've watched like Local Hero and, and various others where we just get this beautiful British countryside despite the rain despite the grey it's just so green and lush and, and wonderful and I want to see it I want to go hey Britain uh, you, uh, I thought I'm, you were I'm trying speaking... to access Britain as if it was Siri hey Britain uh, book me some free tickets paid for by Her Majesty so that I can go to Britain I'm sorry, but COVID-19 is still a thing. God damn it. Well, I'm putting it out there right now. British Film Institute, we're doing a lot of heavy lifting for you guys. We're doing all your work. We're doing all your work right now in these trying times. So I suspect that you owe us a couple of plane tickets and uh, some uh, money to get our passports. And uh, I guess you already have your passport. Uh, And uh, a visa so that we can come to Britain and show you guys how... British film criticism is done. I was gonna, I was gonna uh, come on the war path a little bit and say, yeah, I have my password. I'm an adult, Jason, but mm. you have your license, so I don't. Yeah, really well, have there a, we go. I don't <laughs> have a leg to stand on. <laughs> I could drive us to the border, but then only you could cross it, and then you have to pick me up at the border. Yeah, well, I would. I would wait there for you. I'm Aww. that kind of guy. Uh, we had the bull, of course, and Marwood did a fantastic job on getting that bull back in the field. We saw that gate earlier. It set it up where it said, "Please, you know, please shut this gate," and he climbed over it at that point. But who knew? Like they, they, they had it on there and they brought it back. So all props to Bruce Robinson for using what he had on hand. Of course, we have to mention uh, uh, Withnell going shotgun fishing. It's maybe not the most efficient way to go about uh, fishing, but... Uh, Literally shooting fish in a river. In a river <laughs> with a shotgun. With a shotgun. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's one step below, of course, the ultimate form of fishing, which is dynamite fishing, where you just throw a stick of dynamite into the water and hope for the best. Yeah, they're not quite Homer Simpson. No. But they're... Uh, <laughs> And, and the funny thing is, it, when Withnell is doing this, he literally has his house coat like rolled up so his it doesn't get wet, and he's just like in his underwear, yeah, <laughs> shooting at the water. At one point, he nearly aims it at Marwood's head, and he's like, "No, you're a fucking lunatic! Yeah. Get that away from me!" Yeah, this isn't gonna work, and there's probably not gonna be much of a fish left if you actually manage to hit one. Well, that's the thing too, right? <laughs> I'm gonna just blow this fish apart. You take out the bullet, and you got how much meat left? Well, I assume he's using some sort of bird shot, and then you'd have to take out all the little like balls. <laughs> it is funny how they're definitely not meant for country. No, life clearly life. not. Clearly not. Uh, and and I think the paranoia brought on by all the speed use is affecting them. Uh, <laughs> now they're going about their business here. Um, so, of course, they're scared of the poacher. Is it the poacher they say to where Withnell says, uh, it's you he wants, offer him yourself? Unless he's talking about, uh, unless he was talking about Uncle Monty. I don't know. I don't know. I don't remember, but I have that line written down here. So, uh, your mileage may vary. Go watch the movie and you figure it out. Uh, Do our work for us, Exactly. Assholes. So, when Monty shows up, he has lots of good food with him. 
that's very appreciated, but it's clear why it's there. He brought all that food. He brought all that wine. He's there to wine and to dine. I forgot about my other, uh, my other, the other line from Monty that sticks out for me is when he's trying to seduce Marwood and he says, are you a sponge or a stone? That's the one. That's the one that made me go, wait, uh, do you like oysters? Some men like oysters. <laughs> that's like, yeah. Are you open to other ideas? Yes. Yeah, new experiences. Yeah. Uh, yeah, because at one at one point he was being Monty was being kind of negative toward uh, um, Marwood, and I thought, is he like running some sort of like like game on him, like 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 he's like gonna neg him and then get him into bed that way? It's gonna go like the player route. He was a he was an old school player. This guy, yeah. Step aside, Tim Robbins. Uh, they were hammered playing cards, which is just just classic country behavior. I think he's. I think they're hammered playing cards. He's trying to get with Nell to bed and out of the way. Yeah, no, absolutely, absolutely. But I'm just saying, like, like getting drunk and playing cards, that's a classic country, that's a classic city activity for anybody, especially when you don't have video games or a VCR. Yeah. I mean to have you, even if it's burglary. That's the line. Yeah, you might, And that's yeah. dark. That's a, that's a, <laughs> that's, that's, I'm going to have you even if I have to rape you. Yeah. That's the line. That's yeah. what it is. I thought Hulk Hogan was going to show up at one point in this movie. Oh, that'd have been great. But and that's, he was, be, that's because I heard the voodoo child start to play. Oh, but then it was all wah, along the watchtower. No, when they're uh, when they're driving the car at the end, going fast, it's right. it's voodoo child right, playing. Right, right, So as I mentioned earlier too, Danny described his Camberwell carrot, uh, his joint that he rolled, and I'm thinking, oh wow, and he's like, it's it's twelve papers. The Camberwell carrot can't be lasted twelve papers, and I'm thinking, ooh, what kind of weird fucking joint design is he gonna do? And he just rolls a cone. It's yeah. just a really big fucking cone. And now, to be fair, yeah, sure. Back in 1969, that probably was the like pinnacle of of joint design. But uh, things have advanced substantially. Go watch Pineapple Express. I, again, I th- I'm <laughs> I'm pretty sure they took some inspiration from this well, movie. I I would say, Brendan, overall, like this movie clearly draws from any like buddy comedy. Yeah, I mean they're they're friends, but they're not. You know, they, they they've got their issues, uh, maybe more so than maybe Bob Hope and uh, and uh, Bing Crosby had for sure. But and and certainly inspires later buddy comedy type movies as well is what I get from it. But just this weird toxic relationship where yeah. Do you know another really big fan of this movie was David Fincher? And yeah, I heard when, this when he uh, when he cast Alien Three. He actually tried to get Paul McGann, Richard E. Grant, and Ralph Brown. He only ended up getting McGann and Brown um, because Richard E. Grant had turned it down. Yeah. Because he was like, no, Alien 3. Fuck it. I don't know if that's what he said, but he turned it down. Probably smart. Um, And Richard E. Grant's role went to Charles Dance. And apparently if you watch Alien 3, Charles Dance is kind of doing with Null. I, I never thought I'd ever have a reason to go back and watch Alien 3. Now I kind of want to. Yeah, I kind of do want to see it. Yeah. Marwood got the lead. They get an eviction notice while they're there. And then Marwood heads off and uh, Whitnell clearly is going to die. Very sad ending. But Notes hopeful for ended. Marwood. Bits and bobs over. Shut it down. I do want to talk a little bit about the behind the scenes. Please. This movie is an adaptation of an unpublished novel written by Bruce Robinson. Uh, he got it to a producer and was given 20,000 pounds to adapt it into a screenplay. He 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 felt very weary of this though because he did not think this would be adaptable. He mm. said, "I don't think this is filmable as a movie," but he basically because of the colloquial English and he said, "Well, maybe I should like cut that stuff down." And the producer was like, "No, I want that." 
I want I want there to be jokes like you know there's a thing where uh, there's a line where someone says give me a tanner and I'll give him a bell yeah like stuff like that right and, and the producer was like no no keep all that in I don't want it to be easy I don't want it to be like you know dumbed down or whatever and then they basically said Bruce Robinson you know what you should just direct it too yeah. even though he had never directed anything before he. During the shoot, this is in the documentary, he yeah. actually got up on a chair. He stood up on a chair, Bruce Robinson, around the whole cast and the crew, and he said, listen, I don't know what the fuck I'm doing. I've never directed a movie. I'm going to depend on all of you to help me out <laughs> because there are going to be times when I'm going to not know what to do. And I know a lot of you have experience, and you just tell me. Yeah. Just just don't be shy. <laughs> it's a good, I, that's a pretty good policy to have. I mean, very upfront, as as iffy as he was, the some some of the things he did. Yeah, um, it it kind of actually some some of the things he did kind of reminded me of Sam Raimi and and his you know making Evil Dead and stuff and how he used to torture Bruce Campbell. But the thing was that at Bruce, least they Bruce, were friends. That's it. They were yeah. they were like friends that went way back. So yeah. you know, it, it was it was less dark. It was more just the fun between them of him taking any opportunity he could to torture Bruce. It, it feels more. It feels more Kubrick level mean, but yeah. not quite to that level. No, but not still quite. like, but definitely in that ballpark of of a director abusing their actors to get what they need. So as far as him saying, you know, I have, n- I don't know what I'm doing, but let's do this together. We're gonna get this done. The movie almost got shut down after one day. <laughs> um, producer named Dennis O'Brien said, "Quote: This movie is about as funny as an orphanage on fire." <laughs> he said, "That does sound like something an Irishman would say." <laughs> he said, "All comedy should be brightly lit." And uh, Richard E. Grant needs to be more boisterous and flailing around and upbeat. And um, he also wasn't a fan of the original ending, but I don't think anyone really was. Mm. They said this is way too dark. The original ending is Richard E. Grant walking off like Withnail walks off. He goes home. He pours a bottle of wine into the barrel of Monty's shotgun. He drinks it and shoots himself in the head. That would have been a fucking iconic end to this movie if they'd have gone that route. I get why they didn't. It was probably better to leave it on a more... Um... Uh, vague note uh, as to what his fate was, but that would have been hardcore. <laughs> uh, you want to know some of the, uh, a few actors considered for the role of Withnell that did not take it. Daniel Day Lewis actually turned it down. Um, I mean, he might've still done it. We don't know for sure. We don't know. <laughs> he may, he may, he may be in uh, Richard E. Grant may be one of his aliases. Um, two other actors that, that said no, or just didn't end up doing it were Bill Nye. Oh, I love Bill Nye. That would have been interesting. Yeah. 1986 Bill Nye. Yeah. yeah. And Kenneth Branagh. Which would have been a big get for that movie. I mean, even in 1986, that would have been a crazy That was pre-Henry pre V? Th- three years before. Yeah. Kenneth Branagh in that role, though? Yeah. I don't know. Would have been interesting to see his take on it. I, think I, I don't think it would have been as good, but it probably would have been interesting. His career would have went a totally different way, I think. Yeah, I would say. Because um, Richard E. Grant, whatever career he's had, has not been the career of Kenneth Branagh. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Richard E. Grant. So I want to get into. They're going to play a clip here because there's a clip for the documentary. I want you to hear about like Richard E. Grant and Bruce Robinson, their little thing. Um, but Richard E. Grant said has said a couple times. He's like, I really don't understand fame. Like he's like, I just I don't. He's like, I, I act and I work and it's great and people know me. And he's like, he said, for example, he said a fan approached him in like a supermarket one time and said, Are you Richard E. Grant? And he said, Yes. And the fan was just like. I don't like you. <laughs> well, he's not really a fan then, is just, he? Just straight up, though. Yeah. Like, Well, yeah, yeah, you know what I mean. Like, just like a, yeah. A general person of fan of movies. And, and he said fame just confounds him. But yeah. anyway, this is a clip. Bruce Robinson makes a claim about something he told Richard Grant to do, Richard E. Grant. And then Richard E. Grant basically says that's bullshit. So let's <laughs> listen to this. And then Fatty Grant, who came in with his great sort of jowls drooping, I had to get him on a diet 
to, uh, to, to make him work in the part, you know, because he looked like a sort of a fat dirt bogart. <laughs> I've got pictures to prove it. I've never been fat. But, you know, I think that's part of the um, auteur self-worship that directors indulge themselves in, that, you know, I have taken this person who was, you know, weighed 27 stone and then reduced them to this and then pulled this performance out of them. What bollocks to that? Yeah, I just love it. Fatty Grant showed yeah. up. Like, what an asshole. What a weird way to remember that. Like, like you wonder, like, is that a story he made up and then just started to remember it as real for some reason? Or like, and Richard E. Grant is like, here's the picture. Yeah, I've got pictures. I can show you that I they was skinny. Literally, they literally show <laughs> the picture in the clip. He's not a fat guy at all. Unless it's a sort of like a reverse anorexic situation where uh, uh, Robinson only sees people uh, uh, as fatter than they are. Maybe. Yeah. If you're fatter than Lara Flynn Boyle, then you're fat. That's right. <laughs> Fatty, fat, fat, fat. Thanks. <laughs> That's basically all I have. Well, I mean, let I mean, we talk, no, we can talk about the um the reaction to this movie. Hmm. Um, it doesn't get any Oscars, no BAFTAs, nothing like that, because it's not a movie that's super well received. Again, much like last week, but performance. This is a movie that's appreciated later. Mm. Um, this movie, the per- first preview screening was a total dis- Okay, so this is actually funny, but the first preview screening, total disaster. So the audience is sitting there stone-faced, not laughing. And Bruce Robinson is just like sitting there sweating, like just what is going on? And then he discovered that the audience, this is an English movie. Yeah. The audience is completely composed of entirely non-English speaking German tourists. <laughs> They're all staying at a hotel and they wanted to watch a movie. So it's like 99% these German tourists. And he's like, oh. Although maybe there's a good chance that they're just stone-faced the entire movie. And then they come out and they ask him about it. And they're like, oh, yes, it was very funny. I was very impressed at how funny it was. <laughs> maybe. Yeah. I took in all the laughter and left it inside. We, we, we save our laughter, we Germans. <laughs> We save it for 1946. We laugh or else we cry because we think of 40 years ago. Yeah. It's very sad. It was a bad time. We were on vacation. <laughs> so this movie is highly regarded, obviously, since then. Um, inspiration for a lot of big movies, uh, just to name a few. Uh, the Nice Guys, directed mm-hmm. by Shane Black. Uh, Mark Duplass's movie, Jeff Who Lives at Home. Uh, Pineapple Express. Mm. And uh, Sideways. Yeah. I think Sideways reminds yeah. me a lot of this movie. I suppose, yeah. I think Paul Giamatti is almost a withnal, mm. <laughs> like in a way. Maybe not as in a, a dire situation, but he's an alcoholic. Or, uh, I mean, Zach, Zach Alphanakis is often a sort of withnal in the movies he's in, although maybe a little more likable. Uh, yeah. Not The Hangover <laughs> 2, because for some reason they were like, let's make him more, let's make him less likable. That's what people want. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Why would they want to like this guy? God. This movie uh, budgeted at about $1.5 million. Worldwide made about 1.6. Oh, well, that's, so, a, that's a profit. Well, probably not when you think about international. <laughs> yeah, but how much did they spend on marketing? Yeah, but you don't make all your international money back. No. So, licensing fees. Motherfuckers. Sorry. But I'm sure it uh, picked it up later on videotape and DVD. Those formats are dead. Jason, with no. Hmm. And I. What'd you think? Like with no, I can fuck himself. no i i really like this movie Uh, this is a movie i heard about for years because i you know i've been a uh, i was hard into criterion dvds in the early 80s and 
this was one of the discs that I didn't have that I had always seen and never got around to watching it. And I'm glad I did because it is a really funny movie. Um, I wouldn't say it's necessarily laugh out loud like some movies I've watched, but there's a lot of funny moments in it. The performances are great. It's very witty. Yeah, it's witty. Um, and of course, seeing Richard Griffiths in any movie, I'm always happy because he's wonderful. Uh, yeah, no, this, this is a cool film. Uh, uh, and I, I do certainly recommend it. Yeah, no, I really, really, really like this movie. Um, I didn't know. It took me a while to understand what the tone was going to be. Because at first I was like, mm. is this a comedy? And then as it went on, I was like, okay, this is a very dark comedy. Well, we have that weird, like, that scene of, like, uh, Paul McGann just smoking a cigarette, looking pensive while that, that 80s porn music plays. I love it. And, yeah, it's, it's a, it, it, off the bat, you're like, okay, what is this? <laughs> I, I, I'm not going to lie. I love that that yeah. opening. It's just so, like, <laughs> Yeah, no, that's, that's the music I assume that runs in your head 24-7. All the time. Yeah. Yeah. That's how you live your life. Didn't Educating Rita have a similar music? Well, yeah, but the early 80s kind of shit. Like, that, that yeah. was definitely that that saxophone was was in vogue at that time for, for the, the white man's sax in the 80s was, was a big thing, you know? But yeah, no, this movie's great. I can definitely see why it's in the top third of this list because mm. I think it's a, it's a, it became a cult phenomenon. If you ask people in England, in, in the UK in general, I think people... Uh, love this movie and mm. I think people quote this movie all the time and it's beloved yeah Richard E. Grant is amazing he's great yeah so I, I would say yes to this movie I would yes. say yes yes but Jason now mm. we're gonna find out what we're talking about next week and if it's not carry on up the goddamn Kyber I am quitting on the spot well, then I guess uh, uh, I believe it's my turn to draw this week, so I have a lot of pressure. You do have a lot of pressure. You were going to draw from the envelope, and then you were going to hand it to me, and I will read it. As you can see, the envelope is a white envelope with black marker written BFI Top 100, so we know what it is, and to differentiate it from the many other envelopes that Brendan has around here. No, they're gone. Uh, that, that no, happened. I'm pretty sure I see envelopes all over the place. Okay, well, agree to disagree. <laughs> Jason, here we go. Reach in. <laughs> Don't look at it. Keep There's your eyes not too closed. many. I'm good. I got the thing. Did I grab one or me. two? Oh, I gotta, I gotta put that bad one right. back. All right, pass it to me. If that was Kyrie, yeah, yeah. right. what are we watching, Brennan? God damn it! It's not that yet. <laughs> but you drew number fifteen oh, okay. on the list. Hmm. Okay. Don't. Uh, it's the film uh, Brighton Rock. Oh. And I know all I know is that it stars uh, Richard Attenborough. Oh, okay. Because we've talked about him in a few movies, but this one he's actually the lead. Okay, so this is a 1947 movie with a young, nubile uh, Richard Attenborough. There you go, directed by John Bolting, who is someone I feel like I that name sounds familiar. I feel mm. like we talked about him before. I'm sure we'll figure it out next week. But the funny thing is, I'm not gonna look. That's right. You don't want to spoil yourself. Hashtag no research. <laughs> So Jason, that'll uh, that'll do it. This was a lengthy discussion mm. of a of a uh, of a of a great film. Um, we'll talk about Brighton Rock next week. But until then, just gonna let everyone know that they can find us on social media at bfi underscore pod. You can find us on TikTok uh, for Screen and Country on TikTok. Uh, maybe I'll post something someday. Check it out. There's a couple videos. Yeah, there's a couple things up there. Um, you can find Jason on Twitter. At Jason D. McLeod, that is M-A-C-L-E-O-D. Stop by, say hi, stay a while, and listen. I was doing my Deckard Kane from Diablo. Oh, I think you say Connery. is like, that's too soon. No. Hello, my friend. Stay a while and listen. It's 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 like Bane mixed with Sean Connery is, is how you get Deckard Kane. <laughs> Batman. <laughs> and, and Jason will drink you under the table on his Twitter. Well, that's a bold claim. 
Anybody. Don't care who it is. Yeah, we'll have we'll have drinking contests on Twitter. Yeah. I'm down. Yeah, I totally just drank a hundred. Yeah, I did. I, I'm still standing. Do? We'll do a century. Come on over. Come on in. Uh is that a Shania Twain song? Yes, yes okay. it is. Um <laughs> <laughs> uh, you can find us on all the podcast apps. Of course, our home base is Age of Radio. And uh yeah. Search for Screen and Country. We're on Facebook as well. We're out there, baby. Look for us. But until then, until we talk about Brighton Rock next week, I just have to say to you, God save the Queen. God save the screen. For Screen and Country, I'm Randon. And I am Jason. Chug, chug, chug. Speed, speed, speed. Brass monkey. That monkey, monkey.